let us uh, regather the main th thread of the genealogy, First Chronicles chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Adam, Sheth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalaliel, Jared, Hanok, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now scan down to verse 24. Shem, Arphaxad, Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Sereg, Nahor, Terah, Abram. The same is Abraham. And now flip forward with me to John chapter 8. And we have been considering um, the advance of um, Christological revelation in the days of Abraham. So uh, Abraham lives about, and for ease of numbers, about 2,000 years after, um, after the creation. So he's at about the halfway point between the creation of the world and the coming of our blessed Lord. Uh, the amount of revelation given to, to mankind in the Garden of Eden, both before and after the fall, and then at the at the flood, all things considered for us doesn't seem like very much, and comparatively, I, I suppose it isn't. But viewed from another perspective, it really is a comprehensive revelation. Uh, it doesn't give much in the way of, of details, but it does lay all of the foundation stones of theology or I might use a different metaphor, all of the seeds of all of the doctrines are, are planted. But as we have seen, our Lord Jesus Christ is, is at the very heart of all redemptive revelation. Uh, our Lord himself assures us that the scriptures ultimately are about him his coming into the world, his suffering for sins, his, his rising from the dead and the proclamation of this message to the uttermost uh, parts of the earth. That is given very briefly in Genesis 3.15 when, when Eve was promised a son, um, a son that would crush the head of the serpent, overthrowing his plans and purposes, even while he himself received a wounding in that transaction. Uh, that is the fundamental uh, gospel promise. And uh, in Abraham's day, this is what we might call a revelatory watershed during the days of the patriarchs. So we won't limit this to um, Abraham, but really from Abraham through Isaac to Jacob and to his 12 sons, there's another massive outpouring of redemptive revelation. Probably just in those uh, few centuries, as much uh, revelation as had been received in the whole history of the world beforehand. 
at least as far as we have any any record of it. And much of it is taken up with the development of uh, Christological revelation specifically. So look with me at John chapter 8, verse 39, and let's get the words of our Lord Jesus in front of us again. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death? Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead? Who makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, 
I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So a, a few weeks ago, when we did the, the first part of our considerations of uh, redemptive revelation, as it was in in Abraham's day, we were we were confronting a a particular problem. Here in the Western world, we live under the influence of dispensational theology. It has had a tendency to cut the scriptures up into pieces. And in particular, uh, the Old Testament really becomes, I mean, it's a historical background for the New Testament, but it's, it's a book of a very different kind presenting a very different age with a different way of salvation. And uh, Jesus is mentioned in those Old Testament scriptures, but only in a few places, only here and there. But as we have looked at a, a handful of texts together, if you remember going back a couple of weeks, we looked at John chapter 5, and Moses was portrayed as a believer in Jesus and as a prophet of the Christ to come. Here, Abraham is portrayed as um, rejoicing to see Christ's day. Uh, and he did see it. So it's not just in some ways like hoping that there might be such a thing, but with the eyes of faith, he was able to see the coming of the Savior. And so when, when we um, run into dispensationalism uh, in general, or we get a statement from one of the dispensationalist flagships like Dallas Theological Seminary, when they say that they believe that it is historically impossible that Jesus was the con conscious object of the faith of the Old Testament saints, we must uh, depart from them and, and much is at stake. Jesus is to be glorified in the salvation of all, not just some from the from the first fall of man and the first proclamation of the gospel in the Garden of Eden to the present day, Jesus is to have the glory of the salvation of all. In addition to that, something wonderful happens to the scripture when, when we read the scriptures the way that we are instructed by uh, the great prophet of the church. He has taught us to look for him and to see him. We've, we've spent time, uh, a fair amount of time in the passages. We've already talked about John 5 and John 8. You can think about um, uh, Luke chapter 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter chapter 1, and so on. Um, Acts 26, all, all teaching us to look for Christ in all of the scriptures. Because one way or another, sometimes very directly, say through a, a prophecy or, or a type or an Old Testament sacrament, 
Christ is in view, sometimes more remotely, um, historical background, context, and so on. But one way or another, all of the scriptures have to do with our, our blessed Savior. And it's wonderful what happens, because then when we read those Old Testament texts, it's not just some history, not just some laws, certainly not about an outmoded or outdated manner of salvation. Um, all of this is about our Savior, and I suppose we will delight in that to the extent that we delight in the Savior himself. He is talking to us and teaching us about himself. So uh, last time, our, our last uh, sermon in, in First Chronicles, we, we looked in particular at the person of Christ and the advance that was made during the days of Abraham concerning what was being taught, what was being revealed concerning the Christ. So before Abraham, uh, Christ's person was known with respect to his deity we know that he was the word at creation. In all likelihood, he was the voice of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, the great prophet that delivered that first proclamation of the gospel and his own coming. Uh, so we saw, we, we saw him as deity at the beginning, but then we also saw that he was to take to himself a human nature that he would be the son that would save the descendants of Adam and Eve and, and crush the head of the serpent, frustrating his plans and uh, his purposes. Um, we come to uh, the time of Abraham, and we see that there is an advance upon uh, revelation with respect to his person. We can't do this in... Uh, tremendous detail, but think about the, the uh, many revelatory encounters that the patriarchs, and we're thinking about Abraham in particular, but we could expand it out to the patriarchs. Think about the number of revelatory encounters they had with him. And this, this is in all probability um, the second person of the Trinity, the Word. Um, that one that is commissioned to take take that portion of the internal life of God and take it outward to uh, mankind. And in all of those revelatory encounters, the people of God are coming to know the Son better. They are having face-to-face -face encounters. They are learning concerning Him, and the relationship is being deepened. We looked at just one the um, before the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. We have um, Abraham encountering what he thinks to be three men. Before all things are over, it's revealed that two of those were angels and one was the Lord himself. Right, So we've got a, uh, a theophany here. And as I said, in all, in all likelihood, the, the eternal son himself. So an understanding of his deity is being enlarged and deepened. And with respect to his true humanity, we, le we learn something else very important. Because um, if you remember, 
genealogically, there's been a constant focusing and refocusing so that we don't lose Messiah as humanity multiplies. We need, if we're going to place our faith in him, we need to be able to find him. So at first it was sufficient to say that he was a descendant of Eve, but as men began to multiply, uh, Seth's line is identified as over against Cain. So the promise comes into Seth's line, and we trace that all the way down to Noah. Now uh, the masses of humanity are cut off, and it's just eight. Noah has three sons, and we find that the messianic promise belongs not to Ham or Japheth, but rather to Shem. But now the Shemites have multiplied again, and most of them are wayward. They have fallen away when we first meet Abraham. Uh, he is uh, an idolater, as Terah was before him. Um, but his family in particular is going to be identified, right? So, so the focus is going to be narrowed again. And we're even given a, uh, a location. It's not just going to be anywhere in the world, but in the land that had been promised uh, to Abraham. So we, we've seen some advance on what had been taught about the person of Christ. And now I, uh, I wanted to look at what we knew about the threefold mediatorial office of Christ before Abraham, and then just at least do some consideration of the enlargement of that under, um, under Abraham. So first of all, uh, from the beginning, we, we had met um, the Lord Jesus in his prophetic office, he is identified as the Word in creation, Genesis 1 and John 1. He's identified as the voice of the Lord God. Later on, we'll find him as the angel or the messenger of the Lord, the angel or messenger of the covenant. All of these are functionally equivalent, but he's already been identified as the Word and as the voice of uh, the Lord God. The the um, doctrine of uh, of his prophetic office is going to be enlarged under Abraham. Again, we can just cite uh, the many appearances at which he is teaching Abraham. Right. So new uh, new things are being taught to the people of God. Uh, revelation is being committed. Uh, to Abraham and to the people of God. And this is coming through uh, the eternal word. And um, uh, this is less highlighted, at least with respect to words in the Genesis account of Abraham, but later on he will be called in scripture a prophet. And so we have uh, the ultimate prophet, the prophet par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ, dwelling and abiding in Abraham and by his own spirit, moving and animating uh, Abraham uh, to act as a prophet and to declare uh, the word of the Lord in his, in his own right. So we will see something of an enlargement of the prophetic office. And and next time we're together, 
I do want to look at some of the particular things uh, that the Lord was pleased to teach and reveal. Not all of them, because we, of course, get stuck here for a really long time, but at least some of the principal things uh, pertaining to uh, the covenant of grace. Uh, a sign and a seal is uh, is added in the in the sacrament of circumcision and so on. So we're going to want to look at some of the things. But at this point, I just wanted to note that in these revelatory encounters, the Lord Jesus does make an appearance in his prophetic office, and he is he is teaching uh, Abraham. Uh, if we go back again before Abraham uh, into that ancient patriarchal period, we, we also find that Jesus was revealed uh, from the very beginning as a priest. Remember in that first gospel promise, the son that would crush the head of the serpent was revealed to be a sufferer. The serpent would strike and wound his heel. And before we, before we leave the garden, it does appear that we have the institution of sacrifice, that ultimately all of the efforts of Adam and Eve to cover their own shame are shown to be inadequate. And God himself must cover them, but um, cover them through the death of another. Right? And so uh, immediately after this time, we find sacrifice in, in the family of Adam and Eve. So those, those priestly aspects of the ministry of the Lord Jesus are already uh, revealed. And you might also say in some ways, too, in the patriarchs themselves, in as much as they were uh, officiating priests in these sacrifices for their families and so on, it does, uh, it does appear that Christ is being uh, revealed typically there as both um, sacrificing priest and sacrificial lamb, both of those uh, things. When we turn to the um, revelation of him as, as priest, uh, again, uh, Abraham knows sacrifice and he practices sacrifice. Um, but in some ways, uh, that's not that's not so much an enlargement. That's a continuation of what was given to the ancient patriarchs. But if you think about um, the Genesis 22 account, um, where God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, uh, we do have we do have an enlargement concerning. Um, dynamics involved and maybe even something concerning the place so uh, the sa father sacrificing his son is a very lively portrait or image of what of what god has god the father has done for us in giving us the gift of the son the the willingness of isaac apparently to lay down his life he never uh, he never resists Abraham's uh, um, prophetic oracle that God himself would ultimately prof provide the sacrifice, which happens, you know, immediately by the, by the uh, ramp caught in the thicket, 
but ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even the even the place of it, which is not very not very definite, but does appear to be very close to um, the place where the Lord Jesus Christ would ultimately uh, lay his life down. Um, I'm going to use Melchizedek as a as a segue because because he he's an important figure, especially for what's going to happen later in Israelite history. Uh, of course, going forward in Israelite history, Israel will have priests, uh, the sons of Aaron, a Levite, and they will have kings, the sons of David, a Judahite. But obviously, because they're from different families, no one individual could be both a priest and, and a king. But Jesus is going to be both priest and king, and he is going to be that priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek was both a priest and a king, as we met him in Genesis chapter 14, right? So, um, and uh, it's it's very interesting. So, let's just look at this. This will be this will be the time of David. The, turn with me to Psalm 110. This will be um, 3,000 years after the foundation of the world and 1,000 years after uh, Abraham. But David re received something wonderful uh, by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's just read all of Psalm 110. And um, you want to read Matthew Henry on this. He, he's quite wonderful. He says that this is um, this is David's confession of faith. It presents Christ in the threefold mediatorial office, and presents his messianic career from humiliation to to exaltation. Psalm one ten, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. Thou hast the dew of thy youth. So with respect to messianic career, Christ is presented here initially at the very heights of exaltation, uh, sitting at the at the right hand of his father, sitting at the right hand of Jehovah. Uh, and he's obviously a royal figure. He is at the right hand of the father in the position of cosmic honor, authority, and power, and he's ruling in the midst of his of his enemies. So we've got kingship and we've got exaltation. Verse 4, this is interesting. So this would be a thousand years after um, uh, Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. The Spirit of the Lord puts it in David's mind and in his mouth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And the order of Melchizedek is the only way that these two offices could come together, right? At least as far as it, because if you, if he's a priest after the Aaronic order, he, he can't be king. He has to be a Levite. And so this is a different, this is a different model. This is the order of Melchizedek. There's much mystery surrounding him. But here, the, these two great offices uh, come together. Uh, interestingly enough, there's probably a passing glance at his prophetic office in verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. If you think about the rod of Christ's strength that has come out of Zion, by which he has uh, exerted so much influence in, on planet Earth, um, it is no doubt his, his word. There might be other things, but... Uh, added to it, but certainly it wouldn't be less than, than the ministry of the word by which that mighty power and influence has been exerted. Back, verse 5, back to kingly images. And the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. And then verse 7, you get a peek at his humiliation that led to that exaltation. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. So the lifting up of the, lifting up of the head, the movement toward the, the exaltation is, is presented as a conclusion to... Um, drinking of the brook by the way this is the drinking of the brook by the by the way is really not much of a uh, a royal image unless you are going to, going to um, you know have the, the king out in the in the field of battle but this is the image of uh, this is a relatively humble image of somebody not not in a royal pas um, palace receiving you know a golden goblet filled with the finest wine this is the image of of a traveler on his knees gathering up water at a brook in his hands and putting it to his mouth because of this humbling therefore he shall lift up his head therefore the exaltation interestingly enough the the reasoning there is the very same that that paul gives in that famous passage in philippians chapter 2 uh, if you want to look at it so this, um, um, so this becomes the segue. We, we, we have seen the revelation of Jesus Christ enlarged uh, in the patriarchal age, the, the age of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in his prophetic office, his priestly office, and now the segue to his, his royal office, and to do this, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. I want, I want to look at um, just, just a couple of, of passages and, and consider the, the rationale that is, that is introduced and um, I'll at least try to give some, some hint or or clue about how some of 
some of the threads that are introduced here are going to be tied together. But chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So a, a few things to note here, especially beginning in verse 2. We have the uh, the promise of the multiplication of uh, the seed of Abraham. He's, he's going to be a great nation, and God is going to bless him and make his name great. This is another, another example where frequently we don't have to study hard to see the fulfillment of prophecy. It's really a marvelous thing. Four millennia ago, God promised Abraham that he would make his name great. Abraham was sojourning in a land that was not his own. He was a Bedouin sheep herder. And God said that he would make him famous. And you know his name. He has made his name famous all over uh, planet Earth. So he's going he's gonna to make him a great nation. He was going to bless him. And then he was going to make him a blessing to all of the families of the earth. A reminder that true religion, although uh, laid up for a time and preserved in the midst of Israel, never just was for Israel. Now flip with me to chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, something notice here that the promise uh, really does center upon seed, which is just an enlargement of the Genesis three promise to Eve. And remember, we're not we're not guessing there. I mean, contextually. Um, 
course, the fall and Abraham are separated contextually by two millennia. That's a long time. But, um, but textually, not so much. And even those ages might not be as distant as they appear to us because of the, the length, uh, the great age to which the patriarchs lived that collapses those things down and actually makes them much nearer with respect to the number of generations. And we've done this before. Adam, Melchizedek, Shem, Abraham. That's all that it takes to span uh, those massive uh, amounts of, those massive amounts of time. And, but another thing confirming this is in John chapter eight, if you remember, Jesus in talking about Abraham, they're claiming to be the, the seed of Abraham, and physically they are, but um, he says they're, they're of the seed of the devil, which connects this idea of the seed of Abraham, it kind of continues it, the seed of Eve is the seed of Abraham spiritually considered, they all share Abraham's faith, they share Eve's faith. Um, they bear that family resemblance spiritually, but Jesus actually accuses them of being the spiritual offspring of the wicked one. They look like their father, the devil, from the beginning. He's a deceiver from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning, and so on. So, so Jesus actually connects the Abraham, the language of Abraham's seed and uh, the Genesis three account in a very interesting way. So we're really not not reaching here. This is an enlargement upon that initial promise that was made that was made to Eve. Now with respect to his seed, we learn some other things. He's not just going to produce one nation, but many nations. And that ended up being true. Um, it's not just going to be Isaac, it's going to be Ishmael, and Ishmael's going to be the progenitor of a nation. It's not just going to be Jacob, but Esau, and the Edomites are going to be a mighty nation. Uh, after Sarah's death, Abraham's going to remarry, and Keturah is going to have uh, numerous offspring and, and many nations. And, of course, all of those nations are going to have their kings. Kings of Esau are going to be brought expressly before us, but they're all going to have their kings. But remember, the messianic promise is going to come into one family, that's going to become going to become very clear. Um, so the so in spite of the fact that he's going to be the father of many children and many nations, the messianic promise is not coming into the family of Ishmael. It's coming into the family of Isaac. It's not coming into the family of Edom. It's coming into the family of Jacob. All of Jacob's children are going to be part of. Uh, the church of the living God, but the messianic promise is going to come into Judah's line in particular. And, um, and it's really going to be through the messianic line uh, and through that particular king, so that the covenanted nation and the covenanted king, that the blessing is ultimately going to come to the whole world. And we'll look at this a little bit later, but but go look at Genesis 49 and, and what is said concerning Judah and his royal offspring, I think beginning in verse 10 or so, and the connection to the, 
to the blessing of the whole world. The gathering of the peoples is going to be uh, to this this great royal son of of Judah, as it were. So we've we've got an enlargement upon upon kingship. Many nations from Abraham, but one covenanted nation. Many nations with many kings, but just the covenanted king of the covenanted nation. He's going to be the conduit by which blessing is going to come to all of the peoples of the earth. Hopefully this this justifies uh, something that we have been looking at and keeping our gaze on. That the when Jesus says that ultimately one of the great points of the Old Testament was that the gospel was always to go to the nations. Uh, we see that here in these in these foundational promises that are made uh, to Abraham. So even as the as the true religion is being largely limited to the one family and kept within the one nation during its period of infancy, ultimately it was never just for them. The intention was always that it would go out into all of the world. But here is our royal Jesus. Um, the conduit of blessing to all of the peoples of the earth. In looking at these things, I, I hope that the Savior is is beautiful to your eyes. I hope it draws out your your heart and adoration. I know that I don't have any any more um, precious considerations than to turn my mind to these things uh, again and again. But ultimately, um, Jesus is also being portrayed here to our faith so that we might believe upon him to the saving of the soul. And believing upon the Lord Jesus is not something that, say, we, we did when we first came to know the Lord. The exercise of faith upon the Lord Jesus is something that is continual it it abides throughout our our whole lives and not just um, not just for say the the new and fresh challenges that you might be be experiencing but we continue um, to rest our case upon him with respect to justified righteousness our entire lives when the soul is renewed, as theologians say, faith becomes the habit of the soul. And it, that habit is drawn forth into act again and again and again. So sometimes um, the idea of forgiveness and having been for, forgiven of our sins We can we can lose we can lose this we can we can lose the sense of of the crisis of the whole thing and in some ways it's understandable because the um, because because the crisis is past when we when we are found safely in Jesus but but we continue to need him for the for the forgiveness of sins. As I said, it's a habit of the soul that's being drawn out continually un, into act. Um, 
so the the sin and the great great problem of sin is always with us and so our need of Jesus is always with us let me give you give you a I'm fumbling around here for something but let me let me give it to you in the words of somebody who did it far better my um, undergraduate philosophy professor was a man named um, Dean Martin so dr. Martin and he was um, he was a gem of a man he was all of about five five uh, brilliant blue eyes and fluffy white hair so about what you would expect from a from a philosophy professor his torso was a little too long and his legs were a little too short long torso but arms a little short for for his torso but man there's something magical about being in, in class with him some of the things we talked about i know that he had studied and lectured on those things for half a century but it always he always seemed to be thinking about them like it was the first time really thinking about them and there was something about that that made a deep impression i'm sure that most of the things he said and taught he hadn't changed his mind about in many many years But the issues and the difficulties, the questions, the problems, the pains were were always alive before his mind. I, and so I remember sitting in a class one day, and um, he was talking about sin, the legal problem that's introduced to be sure, but all of the the suffering, the pain, the misery that is that is brought in its wake. And it was interesting as he was as he was meditating on this. It was interesting because I was sitting with mostly evangelical students, and they were they were they kept interrupting him or at least trying to. Because it was uncomfortable. To. To sit there with our. With, the, with our ruined, condition. And so, and so the students were pressing hard to, to get to the gospel and he, he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't let them. He just kept waving them off as they, as they tried to interrupt him and bring some relief to these, these painful re reflections on the terrible consequences of sin and our inability to help ourselves. And so they would interrupt and he would wave them off and they would interrupt and he would wave them off. And then, uh, and then he said something that really stuck with me. He said, sometimes it's important that we remember what it is to be lost. And class time was not over, but he picked up his notebook and he walked out of the room and did not come back. And it it left a, it left an impression. I talked to him about it a little bit later, and he said, "You you know these things can become so so common to us, but when they do, 
the Savior is less precious to us. Um, when, when, this, when the calamity and the sense of danger is alive, to the extent that that's alive in the mind, then, then the Savior seems great, and it's a great salvation that he brings. It's sweet and it's precious. But when, when those notions dim in the mind, And so does our apprehension of the greatness of the Savior and the salvation that he has brought to us. I was really happy to have been there that, that day in class. I was really happy to hear, his, to hear his further explanation of it. I guess I'm trying to say that my, my point is not so much um, uh, just to trace the history of doctrine in a what I hope is is an interesting way but we won't really have have done the day's work until we see Jesus being presented to us in the scripture and exercise faith upon us rest our case upon him and upon what he has done let us pray together